0: I think the architecture profession does rely on its very much its individuals and the skill sets and how you bond those individuals together you know and I think more so these
1: days than ever before it's a team sport isn't it in this episode of the business of architecture and design we are joined by Ben Lawney. he will be a regular host of the podcast Ben is a senior associate and the education lead with PTID Ben has realized projects across five continents collaborating with university and corporate organisations to create future-focused built environments that support people and enhance the human experience. Ben regularly presents at conferences and participates in panel discussions as part of PTID's commitment to contributing to a research-driven design philosophy. We'd like to thank our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, which designs, manufactures and distributes leading-edge furniture for corporate and commercial environments. Zenith Interiors inspires organizations to excel. Thanks also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. Synergy is cloud-based business and project management software for architects. It centralizes your business and project information, giving you more time for design. Try Synergy free for 30 days at totalsynergy.com forward slash ADR. For this episode of the series, Ben talks to Richard Leonard, director at Hayball.
2: A director at Hayball for over three decades, Melbourne-based architect Richard Leonard specialises in learning environments. With vast experience in this sector, Richard's expertise is in helping schools integrate modern educational philosophies into the design of new educational facilities. Providing design leadership to support contemporary pedagogy, Richard regularly collaborates with leading specialists in this field. He is a past chair of Learning Environments Australasia and continues to have an active association with the organisation both locally and globally. He also has strong connections with the Department of Education and Training in Victoria, the Boyd Foundation Learning Spaces Initiative, and the University of Melbourne's Learning Environment Applied Research Network. Welcome, Richard. Thank you, Ben. Pleased to be here. So, Richard, why don't you start by just telling us a little bit about you, your background
0: I'm Melbourne uh, born and bred. I'm a Bayside boy, so I was born in Brighton, grew up in Sandringham, and guess where I live? I'm still in <laughs> Sandringham, but uh, I'm very much a uh, a Melbourne person.
2: What was it like growing up in uh, Brighton, Sandringham?
0: Oh, I I really think I had a uh, a great childhood. It's a it's a beautiful neck of the woods. It still is. Um, I lived by the beach. I swam. I sailed. As a childhood, it was just idyllic.
2: Was your uh, were you become part of a big family?
0: No, a uh, small family. I have uh, one uh, much elder half sister, mm-hmm. another full sister. My parents uh, were fairly modest people. They, uh, in fact, uh, you know, interestingly from my point of view, they didn't have much of an education. Mm -hmm. They both left school very early, but uh, both in their own ways were, you know, very successful, intelligent people. What did they do? My mother typically was uh, the housewife of the the family at that time, but uh, my father left the uh, the Air Force, he was in the Air Force, mm-hmm. and uh, during the war, his role was in radio operations. Right. So I guess uh, with no education, coming out of the Air Force and a little bit of radio knowledge, what he did was started up a, a radio repair shop, in fact, in Sandringham, I reflect that's you know an interesting journey from his point of view, but it's also a profession or a you know a skill set that just doesn't exist anymore basically.
2: do you think he was sort of a, a role model for you as you started to develop in your career?
0: I think he was a role model in the sense of a work ethic, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, in those days, uh, you worked uh, five and a half days a week. Uh, you, you know, in the in the shop. Yeah. The other time, you spent stocking the shop or taking care of business. So, you know, it was pretty full on from that point of view. And uh, you know, looking back as a kid, you don't right. you don't understand those sorts of things. You know, you see it as a as a pretty green sort of youth. But, you know, looking back, I thought, boy, he was a hard worker and, uh, you know, he uh, he didn't give in. And yep. uh, probably skills that you really need in architecture too.
2: So was there somebody young in, in your life that kind of inspired you to get into architecture and design?
0: I can remember it to the day, Ben, in that in grade six at primary school, we had a teacher called Peter Reardon. Yep. And Mr. Reardon was one of those, uh, in a sense, a fearsome teacher. He really, you know, threw the the fear of God into you to some extent. He was also a very gifted teacher. He was really inspiring. What Peter really liked doing was art. But he had this, uh, you know, noisy bunch of 42 boys at, at this stage in a single class but he used to do the most beautiful chalk drawings on the drawing board every day. You know, it, was, it was true art. Yep. But one day I remember Peter talked about architecture and I'd never heard of the word before. And it just, I don't know what happened. It just uh, captivated me. And ever since that time... Uh, I really wanted to do architecture. Wow. And I'm very lucky to be able to say that because I know my own daughter, uh, year 11, finishing year 11 at the moment, has no idea what she really wants to do. Yep. Uh, you know, which is not uncommon, of course, for kids, uh, especially these days. But for me, it was something that I always aimed for because I, the more I got into it, the more yep. I thought this is really an incredible profession.
2: So you went straight from high school into RMIT? Tell us a little bit about RMIT in the 70s.
0: RMIT in the 70s was a really interesting place. Um, It had gone through quite a change in its focus. It had a lot of interesting uh, lecturers there and people Mm -hmm. who were uh, connected with the university. At that stage, it was being led by Graham Gunn. Graham was the the dean and, of course, Graham being um, the, the half of Gunn Hayball, but Graham really brought to the table a lot of different ideas. And I think to some extent that came from Graham's own background. Yep. Uh, he didn't have a huge amount of education himself, but he really was very invested in the professional practice and getting professional practitioners into RMIT as part of that arrangement. So, for instance, at that stage, it was three years full-time, three years part-time. So you did yep. the, you know, the three years part-time, which was pretty broad-ranging. And then you you got into practice and coming into RMIT, uh, you know, in evenings or late yep. afternoons. And the great thing, I think, from my point of view, was that it it was bedded in in a reality because you had professionals who you knew, respected, yep. you saw their work. You know, it was it was kind of education that was live in mm-hmm. front of you. It was the polar opposite, I think, to what was happening at uh, the University of Melbourne, for instance, at that time, in yes. that that was much more academic. So for me, it, it was a really good fit. You know, there were some great people there too.
2: And while you were studying, how early on did you start working at Gun Hable?
0: Uh, That would have been just... Just on the point of, uh, just after graduation, in fact, mm-hmm. it was uh, it was actually tough times to get a job at that time. Yep. It, it was we were going through a bit of a recession, as the architecture profession tends to experience fairly often. And uh, I was just lucky enough to to find a position there. You know, that was uh, looking back, that was uh, just a great experience for a young student to have. It was a a firm that was very committed to the social aspects of architecture in the sense of, you know, a social responsibility for what you do. Mm -hmm. Uh, Graham and Len, Len Habel, really promoted a vibrant practice that was engaged in the profession, in the community, in education. It was a terrific time to be part of that and to, to see a culture built around a practice yes, and how that could support a lot of different views and a really vibrant attitude to architecture.
2: Do you think there's a really strong link between Graham's involvement at RMIT at the time and then the culture of the practice as sort of a bit of a continuum of the ideas that were explored at university being then continued to develop in the practice?
0: I think that's inevitable. As I say, I think probably the, the key aspect was Graham's view that education had to be connected to practice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I suppose that came from uh, Graham's, in effect, Len's time where you went through some form of academic education, but it was always bedded in practices being part of that. It was the old, you know, system of, of having uh, mentors, I guess, in a sense. And that, I think, particularly in architecture, which is, you know, part arts, part science. Yep. Uh, fundamentally, at the end of the day, you know, a lot business. Yes. It really is a good method, I think, for for educating uh, young architects. Mm-hmm.
2: So, after you've graduated, you worked at Gun habel for a while and then you took the classic Australian trip overseas and did some work in London. Who did you work for there?
0: It was the classic Australian trip, Ben. Um, it, you know, it was the, the rite of passage that I think we all had to do. The idea from my point of view was always to make a break. You know, yep. you've gone through a fair bit of education. So you it's a terrific thing to, to make that distinct break, put yourself into uh, unfamiliar territory in some mm-hmm. sense. Also give yourself a base to see the architecture that you had of course. Uh, learnt about uh, yep. for so many years. So uh, I didn't actually get to work with any hugely well-known firms in, mm-hmm. in the UK. I tended to um, just find uh, the jobs I could, um, sometimes just on a, a hire and fire basis working short term, and that was fine at the time. One that sticks in my mind, and I think it sort of gives you an idea of the experience you can get. It was a firm, that a very traditional firm in London, called George True Dunn Beckles Wilson Bows. Bit of a mouthful. Bit of a mouthful. <laughs> the work that they had, for instance, was, and what I worked on, was working on Her Majesty's Foot Guards. What? So my claim to fame, I recall at that st- stage, was in uh, pencil and paper, uh, drawing up the armaments uh, bench at uh, Her Majesty's Foot Guards, and right. I thought, you know, I don't get this experience in Australia. So, <laughs> even though it was fairly minor, I really enjoyed it. And uh, of course, working in uh, anywhere in Europe, you you get such fantastic breadth of experience that uh, is is really quite rare
2: uh, and i think certainly at that at the end of the 70s early 80s it really was an and adventure that you'd you'd travel back to the mother country do you think that's sort of changed now as australia has matured its design has matured and the quality of the work we're producing is certainly much more equivalent to what we're seeing in the rest of the world
0: I think that's right, Ben, and you raise a number of issues, I think, in that. You know, firstly, I I suppose, uh, yes, our focus has has shifted. I think I recall when I was leaving at that stage as a young graduate, my design lecturer at the time, the late, great Peter Corrigan, said, why are you going to Europe? Why are you going to London? It's dead. Europe is dead. You know, the new world is America, and, of course, Peter... Uh, you know, when uh, he uh, graduated, was uh, in the US working for people like Paul Rudolph yep. and really getting fantastic experience. But uh, he was right. In, he was right in the sense of, you know, America was the brave new world. And what was happening in that stage was the, you know, postmodernism was starting to roll out. Yep. You know, Venturi had written his book and there was a vibrant discourse. Now, Having said that, I think some of the best experience I have was uh, actually in London gate crashing the Architecture Association (laughs) and they used to have these open lectures or sometimes I don't think they were open but I I managed to find out they were on and you managed to sort of sneak in because security in those days was almost non-existent. You know, I really saw some wonderful practitioners, you know, some of your heroes, in, a, in yeah. fact, people like Sterling and um, uh, Cedric Price, yeah, well. uh, you know, these sorts of people just give small lectures to a group of 50, 100 students. Yep. So I used to gatecrash that and think, boy, you know, you feel as though you're really part of something, you know, a discourse that is, is way bigger than what you used to yep. back home in Australia leading to the the US though i think you know that's at that stage that's when the the tables were tipping into you know some of the really interesting architectural discourse happening at the time yep. particularly in the or uh, well, the east and the west coasts of the US
1: is your practice ready for the disruption that is already impacting the industry To ensure you're prepared for the future, book your ticket now for the inaugural Business of Architecture and Design Conference at AustralianDesignReview.com and click on the Conference tab. Held in Sydney on Monday the 11th of November 2019, one of the conference's highlights will be the unmissable Great Debate. Taking on the topic, architecture competitions are good for the city and the architecture industry, two teams of experts will battle it out in the historic Legislative Assembly Chamber of the Parliament of New South Wales. The teams will include Carter Williamson's Sean Carter, Lava's Chris Boss, Angelo Candelapas, and Abby Galvin, soon to become the first female New South Wales Government Architect. To find out more, visit the website.
2: So then, after your wonderful experience, you came back to Australia. Gun Hayball had had sort of come apart, and it was now just Hayball, but you still chose to come back and pursue a career with Hayball.
0: I didn't come back with the express wish of doing that, although I, I didn't even know that uh, Len and Graham, and at that stage it was Carl Fender, yes. Gun Williams Fender. Uh, Bill Williams, of course, was there. They, they'd they gone their separate ways for all sorts of diff- different reasons. And uh, when I came back, um, I was, uh, in fact, ca- called up by uh, Len Hayball. And I'd I'd got a job in a a small firm in the city that um, was fairly dispiriting, I'd have to say, in terms of pretty uh, simple work that uh, I was involved in. But Len rang up one day and he had uh, basically just uh, gone out by himself, left the the firm and was um, reinventing. It was Len Habel Architects at that point and said, "Uh, Rick, I hear you've got a job, but um, would you like to join forces? (laughs) So I came over and worked for Len, and, uh, you know, we often laugh that the, the business at that stage was uh, based in the, the backyard garden shed of his house. It didn't really matter, you know, That's no. that was small beginnings, so it was just Len and uh, myself and mostly Len going out and getting the work at that stage, and I was uh, back in the garden shed, grinding away on, on the drawing board, and... Uh, Slowly and gradually, it, it grew with um, a couple of other employees and we moved out to a proper office. A real office. A real office.
2: So many of the of the great institutions of our time have started in the shed. It's a real home of innovation. How do you see that as part of the development of the new Hayball for you?
0: It's a good question. I think at the bottom of that is, you know, what makes a practice a practice. Yep. Ultimately, particularly with architecture, it's not about turning out widgets. You know, we, we aren't on a production line turning out standardised products. It's a problem we have explaining this to our accountant, in fact, that, you know, <laughs> they, they just think that it's some sort of um, fairly steady, programmed um, practice. I think the architecture profession does rely on its, very much its individuals and the skill sets and how you, how you bond those individuals together. You know, and I think more so these days than ever before, it's a team sport, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, the projects are getting bigger, more complex. The demands on individuals are extremely high. The key to it, from my point of view, is how you do get the spread of skill sets working in unison. Mm. And I suppose coming back to the the core of your question, I think that's what Len was really terrific at doing, um, understanding what needed to be built as the environment to support an architectural practice and by hook or by crook making that happen.
2: So you've started out small and then the practice has obviously blossomed over the years. What do you think the main milestones have been for you individually in terms of that growth?
0: In terms of an arch- well, me as an individual architect, I think that it was very much... Getting into the sphere that interested me and that was my passion, which was around education, and being able to build that and build that as a, a as an important part of a rich practice, yep. has been, I think, a you know an important part for the practice, an important part for me. Looking at the successful practices, you need that bandwidth of skill sets that might have expertise in a whole series of different areas mm-hmm. because, as you know, you you just simply can't rely on any specific sector in architecture. You have to Absolutely. have some degree of spread that, uh, over the years, has really been one of the things that's really supported the success of, of Hayball.
2: And is that something that you've strategically set about achieving?
0: Yep. Very much. Very much. We started out in the very early days. uh, In fact, just back in the days in the garden shed, uh, involved in um, uh, residential work, even just extensions, you know, extremely small stuff. But uh, gradually that built up and up. And the more people you get on board, the more you have the capacity, of course, to produce other work Mm -hmm. and to, to seek other sectors of work. You know, through the, the ups and downs of the last 30 years, we've been very fortunate in this country. In the in fact, in the last 20 years, putting aside the GFC, uh, you know, we've had uh, a pretty good economy, yep. which su- has supported a pretty robust and vibrant architectural profession. But there have been ups and downs. And, you know, I think in uh, probably the late late 80s, there was a time that you know, uh, late 80s, early 90s that were were very difficult for architectural practices generally and particularly for us and Mm -hmm. looking at all options on the table at that point I recall from the point of view of not being able to see more than a few months ahead and The lesson out of that is to spread your eggs in as many baskets as you can. I yep. think where we're at at the moment, for instance, is really being able to to look at the sectors in education, and education is of course just not a single sector. It's you know yep. pre primary, primary, secondary, tertiary, even um, you know universities of third age. It keeps going. But um, apart from education, you know, heavy investment in high density residential urban planning. Interiors.
2: Yep. So I'm really interested to know. Obviously, starting out small, you win a project and you actually do a project with your own hands. You do your own CA and then you develop into a really big practice, and the role that you have completely changes. How have you managed your own transition?
0: It's a really good question because it's a a challenge that faces um, most architectural practices going through a period of growth. That is, invariably, they start with a small group of people doing, as you say, pretty much everything. From there, as you grow, you need to delegate to release some of your responsibilities and concentrate on others. And I think architects, and I I guess like engineers, also gets into – they get into a state where um, you start to drift away from the skill sets that you had developed uh, in terms of the architectural profession and starting to buy – necessity basically develop other skill sets ie management and yep. I, I think that architects haven't embraced that uh, as <laughs> as willingly as um, uh, as we'd want because it's it's not what we want to do we go into architecture wanting to to build to construct to design Absolutely. and uh, you know to to get into financial management and hr and you know practice management yep. is not everybody's dream quite obviously
2: I completely agree, but there's sort of a – what logically happens is that the people who are great at design end up leading practices, and one could perhaps argue they move further and further away from what they were great at. Do you think this is why some firms have really successfully gone on to be big practices, and while some firms just don't make that leap?
0: Yeah, I think that's true to a certain extent, Ben. There's there's two things that sort of spring to mind there, and if you look at uh, you know the way that a lot of the big practices in Australia have developed, they have developed often through necessity. And you you look yeah. back at the uh, some of the firms like Woods Bagot or Hassels, uh, Greenway at, at the time, who all started in Adelaide, but Adelaide got too small for them, so they were sort of forced out. So there's there's one. Model there of sort of forced expansion, if you like. Mm-hmm. You know, otherwise you don't grow. The other model, I think, is as you've uh, talked about, is how you grow incrementally, and 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 how do you aggregate the skills skill sets within your practice mm-hmm. to support that growth. Growth isn't necessarily always something that people aspire to either. I think you have to recognize that. Yeah. You know, there's lots of great examples of, uh, of, of terrific designers who have just maintained their control yeah. through being small, yep. through being able to do, you know, Glenn Murcutt, I think is one of the classic examples. Absolutely. I think with growth also comes the obvious potential to do different work, and perhaps yes. you know bigger work, and to do work in other areas. Through that, coming back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, comes hopefully some sort of financial stability and your ability to to ride through the uh, the ups and downs of uh, Australia's economy.
2: You spoke earlier about about a real commitment to sort of corporate social responsibility, and and I guess a passion in education design. Is that something that was important to you throughout the whole career that you've had in architecture or did something happen along the way that drove you towards that?
0: I've reflected on that, uh, you know, personally myself over many years because, you know, I look back to uh, grade six and realise that for me, education was a, a critical point in my life. It's a critical point in everybody's life, of course, but it was a light bulb moment for me. And that's not an uncommon story. For me, if you believe in the transformative power of education, then it's a really exciting sector to be involved in. The fact that you can uh, impact positively people's lives, people's experiences, yeah. and, you know, fundamentally also, it's a, it's a critical part of our economy, a part of this country.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode. Join us next time to hear more about Richard Leonard's journey. The Business of Architecture and Design podcast is produced by Joanne Davies, publisher of Australian Design Review and Architectural Review, Madeline Swain, editor of Architectural Review, and Niche Media. With thanks to our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, and also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. For more information and links, visit the episode webpage And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate us.